Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon when in the world you are and what time of the day you're listening to this, the Ask Podcast. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by a good friend of mine, a very good journalist, and a man who I think knows his football uh, extremely well, um, Paul Brown. Paul, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. You? Yep, very good indeed. Thank you. Um, we spoke a few days ago when we were preparing for for this uh, for this podcast, and um, you were you had the good fortune at least to go to Stamford Bridge on Monday, although mm. um, the result wasn't quite what we wanted, even if it was possibly what we expected. Yeah, um, you can look at it in, in different ways, I guess, can't you? Not the best performance. Um, what Carlo said after the game seems to have struck a chord with a lot of people in that he, he kind of admitted that Everton can't just open games up like that against teams like Chelsea because they're not quite in the same league yet, um, which is probably a fair assessment, especially without some of their big, game, big guns available. Um, Chelsea could afford to rest people like Mount and, and Rudiger um, and still had enough really on, on the bench to... To cause to cause us plenty of problems, and if you look at Everton's team, there were a lot of kids really weren't there on the bench. That was the biggest thing that, that jumped out. So, I think he's he's probably right about that. But from starting the season in, in quite an attacking way and, and opening games up and scoring a lot of goals, he's had to find a different way to win. And I think he's probably found the right way to do that at the moment. It didn't work against Chelsea, but the way they're playing, while it may not be the most expensive or brilliant to watch or free-flowing, free-scoring football, I think it is probably the right the right recipe for success for Everton right now. Yeah, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> I wonder what, how effective it is going to be, or rather this style is going to be, if uh, Ducore is out for any, any period of time, because mm. clearly... Um, at least the the starting lineup in terms of midfield, sort of, I guess most Evertonians sort of thought, well, you know, we know what we're going to get when when you've got uh, Sigurdsson and, and, and Gomez uh, playing together, and it only really changed, I think, when when Tom Davis came on in the second half. Yeah, and they were forced to to chase the game a little bit. Um, I know Everton didn't play very well and didn't create a lot, but at the same time it's a similar pattern to, to many of their games, which they have ended up winning, really. It's just that in all those away games they've, they've been winning, they've scored first, which has been a big a big factor. It didn't happen against Chelsea, who are pretty formidable at home at the moment and have been for months. Um, but the pattern of the game was pretty similar. And I thought there were, there were two moments in it um, which kind of summed Everton up because Ricarlison twice was played basically in by Sigurdsson the second time just after Davis came on and, and Davis started that move, I think. Um, but both times he, he just took a bad touch. The ball got away from him. The first time Christensen nicked it away from him and the second time he, he couldn't get a, a shot on target really because again, he was closed down. But those little margins, those little moments in games are the ones that Everton have looked quite efficient and ruthless in in previous games and they just didn't have it in this one. Um I don't think they've been making enough of those moments, but the moments they have been creating, they've been managing to put away. I Carlison was pretty deadly, wasn't he, in the last few matches before that, but this just wasn't his game and, and it cost them in the end, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because I, <clears throat> I read a statistic the other day that said that Everton are the most efficient in terms of um, converting chances to goals. So 
you know, we don't we don't make many chances given yeah. the style of play. And then, but when we do, um, we convert more of them than anybody else in in, in the Premier League. And as you say, mm-hmm. on on, uh, on Monday, it just didn't happen. I think it's unfair. I guess it's unfair to pick out one individual. But if uh, if Holgate hadn't sort of like gone to gone to sleep for a few seconds, which which he did for Chelsea's goal, and we'd managed to get through to half time nil uh, nil. It might it might have been a different game in the, in the second half, but hey, you know, it's all, all ifs and buts, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah. Um, the purpose for today's uh, podcast is uh, really to talk more about Carlo Angelotti, and and, and we're very fortunate to have you on, Paul, because you, uh, in your role as co- covering um, London clubs, obviously covered Chelsea, and you covered Chelsea at a time when uh, Carlo was their manager. So, mm. uh, I understand that you. Um, you know, you got to know him fairly well in terms of meeting him regularly as part as part of part of your job. So we thought we'd have a, you know, what should be an interesting conversation about um, what you make of Carlo and and you know some some of the times that you you spent together with him. Yeah, um, I used to see him every week basically when I was doing Chelsea and, and he was there as as manager. We'd we'd do his press conference every week and I'd see him before and after the games, obviously. Um, He's just a very hard guy not to like. I don't think there's anyone at Chelsea who still doesn't have a massive respect and, and admiration for him. And, and looking back on everything that's happened at Chelsea since, I genuinely think that was probably the last time that the players there were, were genuinely really happy and behind the manager and had total respect for, for, for the guy's authority for any length of time. But there have been spells under people since he, he was there. Um, when it's worked, but eventually it's always gone wrong in, in some way. Um, but I genuinely think while he was there, he, he, he's probably the, he was the most loved Chelsea manager they've had for a very long time. Um, you didn't always get to see it. I mean, he was quite guarded with us sometimes when we, when we spoke to him at, at press conferences and tried to, you know, get lines out of him, but it would also be very funny um, I was going through some old cuttings the other day and I found that we'd, we'd done a big back page with him just before the January transfer window opened one year when he said, um, no, no, we don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sign anyone. Don't worry about it. There'd be no stories on, on players coming in. And, and he said, I'll, I'll run around naked in the snow if we sign anyone this January, which obviously was great for tabloid press. And to be fair to him, they, they didn't sign anyone, so he didn't have to run around naked in the snow. But I, I remember he had a bit of a reputation in, in Italy um, for telling a lot of kind of white lies to, to the press, um, but always kind of with, a, with an eyebrow raised and a, and a glint in the eye and, and a smile on his face. And I think, you know, in the same way that players and, and club staff respect and like him I think he's he's had that from the media too because he's got a there's just a charm about him he's a a genuine gentleman I can remember one press conference um at Chelsea it's quite a small room in in their training ground I don't know why they've they've built this massive million pound new training facility and the press conference room is absolutely tiny no idea why that was but we're all packed into this room and Carlo comes out sits up on the desk and we're you know, asking him questions and he's he's responding to us. And we start hearing these these sort of strange noises in the background, like as if there's a little little baby or something crying. Um, anyway, it turns out one of my 
colleagues had to bring his, his wife and small child along to the press conference. And they were just sat in the car park in their car because they weren't sure they'd be allowed anywhere. But at Chelsea, there's this, um, there's Brian, the tea man, who does all the tea for the press, basically. He was an institution at the club who said, no, 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 come in, Carlo won't mind, and showed him into the back of the press conference room. So <laughs> my colleague's wife is desperately trying to keep the, the kid quiet while he's grizzling away. And... You know, we're all a bit puzzled as to where the noise is coming from. And then by the end of the, the press conference, when it's all it's all wound up, I'll always remember the first thing Carlo did. Normally, at the end of a Chelsea press conference, the manager can't wait to get out of the room. Yep. And they can always exit stage left by the door they come in, where we go in, we come into the room from a completely different side, basically. But the first thing Carlo did, and he'd obviously spotted this baby about five minutes before the end of the, the press conference, he, called an end to it all and went straight over to the lady and, and the child. And he, he spent a good 10 minutes just cooing over this baby, like any sort of doting father would. And, you know, just chatting and, and giggling with, with the two of them. And I just thought, I can't really see a Jose Mourinho doing this, you know, <laughs> completely different types of character. Yeah, yeah. And I think that kind of thing, that sort of warmth and humanity is pretty rare in football managers they're under so much pressure and they have to put a, a game face on for the media and for players sometimes too in addressing them but Carlo seems to be someone who's always managed to respond to people in a very human way and you can tell from talking to players that he's, he's managed how much respect they have for him and how much they love him not just as a manager or a, a sort of tactical mind um but as a genuine human being, they all talk about how he, he's your friend or he's like the father figure and he, he'd do anything for you. Um, if something was going on in your life, he, he'd be the one who, who'd make sure they'd go and ask you about it, put an arm around your shoulder. I think John Terry told us a story once about how he's, somebody in his family was, was quite seriously ill. He hadn't told anyone at the club. And then the first thing that happened to him in training the next morning was Carlo comes over, puts his arm around his shoulder, you know, and asks him about what's happening you think you think he thought how does Carlo even know about this I haven't told anyone so I think little insights like that into the man are are quite important really he's someone who's quite unique in the football world because he's been to all these clubs and left them all pretty much all of them Napoli maybe you could argue differently but pretty much all of them he's left them in a, a better position and all the people he's interacted with all seem to love him you can't find anyone really who has a bad word to say about him it's very unusual, isn't it, for to have somebody who um, uh, demonstrates such uh, well as as is, as, is, as is in, in his book title uh, leadership. And he's very clearly a, a leader of of men or a leader of people, I should say more accurately. Um, yet uh, he's loved and liked wherever wherever he's been. I mean that that is a very unusual combination. Yeah, I mean I went I went back to his book to before I did this to sort of to brush up on, on a few things and the, the things that jump out at you from, from that in particular, he, he talks, the book is called quiet leadership, isn't it? And that does kind of sum Ancelotti up. He's a believer, not in ranting and raving, but in that kind of subdued, quiet authority, he just exudes this kind of aura, doesn't he? And I, I think for players at Everton who, who may, you know, Everton don't have a squad full of people who've won the Champions League, for instance, do they? Like Kyle Ancelotti does. He, I think that aura has a big 
a big impact on on the dressing room. But he's always said that leadership for him is not about forcing people to do things. He's not a he's not somebody who pushes you to do something. He's going to nudge you along the way and, and find ways to convince you that it's the right thing to do. And I think that's quite a skill. There aren't many many managers who do that. Lots of managers like to rule through fear or by forcing people to do things and you you know you will obey me. Carlo's more of a kind of he wants to listen to his players. He went he went when he first went to Chelsea, the first thing he did, I remember, was he, he sat down with Terry and he sat down with the other key players there, the you know, the, the the most experienced ones in the dressing room. And he said, look, you've had a success before. I need to know what worked and what didn't. This is how I work and how I want to work. Tell me what you think of these ideas. And he listened to what they said and adapted everything he did at Chelsea to make sure that they were in the best position, that they were happy with what he did. Now, you can say that sometimes he's criticised for going too easy on people, but certainly at Chelsea, at least, that worked because there was a, a core group of very experienced players there who had been successful and won stuff and knew what would work on the training ground and what wouldn't. And Carlo was coming to a new culture. He hadn't, he hadn't managed in the Premier League before. He hadn't coached an English team. And the, the advice they gave him really worked, just simple things like don't do a full day's work on, on tactics on the board like you would in Italy the day before a game because players here will get bored of it and they'll stop listening. Now, some managers just refuse to accept that. They come in and they say, this is the way I do it. I don't care if you, if you think you'll get bored. You will, you will keep listening to me and you'll do what I say. Carlo didn't do that. He immediately said, OK, I'll listen. We won't do it like that. And he would cut up the tactical um, parts of, of training and move them around in the week. And he wouldn't do one whole solid block that goes on for hours in front of a, a tactics board. And it worked. They listened to him. They took his ideas on board and it was very successful. Um, I don't think there are many managers who, who would do that. And it's, it's, a, it's a talent that few have, I think. He should be lauded for it, really. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in, in his book, Quiet Leadership, he makes the comment about, um, in his opinion, that players play their best when they're comfortable, not when they're uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and he talks about being comfortable, not so much in terms of um, how they're playing, but in terms of the state of mind. Yeah. So that, you know, effectively, his belief is that if you're happy, you know, if you're happy in, in what you do, then you perform better than... Uh, when you're unhappy and in the sort of in the macho world of football, which some managers still seem some of the dinosaurs perhaps still seem to think, you know, that's the way to go about it is, it is, is an enormous difference. It's interesting, isn't it, Paul? You, I mean, we sort of, in a sense, almost, um, sort of almost blase about the fact that he actually manages Everton. Sometimes I think I have to pinch myself that he, he's actually managing Everton. And if, and if, if I think back to, you know, when he arrived at the club, uh, lots of people had sort of different views as to what the motivation was in, mm. in him coming here. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think right now he's genuinely enjoying a different kind of challenge because he's often criticised as a bit of a mercenary manager who comes in, to a team, to a top team that's already done well, but for some reason has had a, a dip, comes in and fixes it and then disappears off somewhere else to the next job where he can do the same thing. So that he's never really had a chance to, to build 
um, a team or a club in the way that maybe he did at Milan right at the start of his, his career. He's, he's, you know, jumped around quite a lot. And that's probably also partly why he's not associated with any kind of one style of football either. He doesn't have a, an overarching philosophy. He's willing to adapt to different leagues, different situations, different players. But I think that's a strength, really. That sometimes a manager can get too caught up in, in his own way and his own his own ideas, his own philosophy. And for a while, it can be brilliant and it works. And then when things start to go wrong, it can be very, it can go wrong very, very, very badly. And who knows if Jurgen Klopp will, will turn things around or not at Liverpool, but he's that kind of manager in that he yeah. has his one way. Everything must be done Klopp's way. And when it works, it's, it's brilliant and it's taken them to massive heights, obviously. Um, but when it, when it goes wrong, and it only takes a little tweak or a little, you know, chink in the armour for it to go wrong, it can go quite spectacularly wrong. And so far, I don't see much evidence that Klopp, for instance, has, has seen that and he's, he's going to, to change the way he manages or coaches or, or sets a team up. Um, he might be able to fix it and go back to what they were when they get players back next season. You know, that, that's also perfectly possible. But there's something to be said for the more reactive manager that, that Carlo is in, that he can see if something's not right and he'll change it. If you compare, for instance, how Everton started the season to how they're playing now, it's like chalk and cheese. They're playing yeah. a completely different style, completely different way with a different formation that actually changes from almost from game to game to suit the opposition. It's the, the archetype of being a reactive manager. That's the kind of thing that someone like Mourinho would do. And, and a lot of people think that style of management is um, going out of fashion. Um, but I, I would disagree with that. I think... Um, I think he's the right man for Everton at the moment. The story goes, when they first approached him, he actually turned them down. Um, but there were a lot of, of clubs who, who approached Ancelotti at that time and he turned them all down because he genuinely did want to have a bit of a break from football. But whatever happened in, in the interim, Mashiri got back onto him um, and convinced him that the project was worth taking on. Uh, cynics would say, well, he, he bunged him a load of cash and how could Carlo say no? But... You know, Car- Carlo is not a poor man. He- he's not someone who needs the money. And I think the appeal of, of coming to-, to Everton was that he would get a chance to do something that he hasn't at other clubs for a long time. And that was to, to build something for the future. Yeah, it, 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 at the time, it surprised me. And it still, I guess it still surprises me now because um, Mishiri, well, from when he came in, in 2016, he approached an, an awful lot of high-profile managers to come to Everton. And I, I suppose, well, he wasn't successful in getting anybody uh, that perhaps was his number one choice at any any particular time. Um, you know, okay, he got Ronald Koeman, but no, I don't think anybody thought Ronald Koeman was the first person that he phoned when he decided to to fire um, Martinez. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we know, we, we know he wasn't. And then, you know, to arguably for arguably the club to be in a worse position in what December November December two thousand and nineteen than it was in sort of you know late uh, April May two thousand and sixteen when when Martinez went uh, arguably the club was in a worse position in two thousand and nineteen and and for him then to get um, Carlo it's quite remarkable really isn't it yeah. Um... 
you know, you, you you don't associate the two, do you? You don't associate a manager who's won the Champions League, the amount of times he has and managed at the the kind of clubs he has with Everton necessarily. So, in in many ways, they he pulled off a masterstroke by being able to being able to get him in. And you know, you, you have to say he did he did a great job of doing that. I'm I'm not convinced that um, Ancelotti was ever someone he'd always wanted or has, has always said, all right, one day I'm going to employ him as a manager. And it, it may be, you know, a, a quirk of fate, an accident that he's ended up at Everton because the timing worked in in a way, you know. But um, I think it was I very know, uh, opportunistic, I wasn't on, on any shortlists before, before that when he was at a club. I don't think Mashiri ever, ever thought, oh, I can poach this guy from, you know, a, a giant of football somewhere else. But the timing worked and, and you have to, you have to credit the guy for getting him in really. No, absolutely. I think, I, I think it was op- opportunistic, you know, he, um, yeah. I don't think it was part of any great plan, you know, <laughs> had Carlo sta- stayed at, um, at Napoli, then, then he obviously wouldn't have come to Everton. No. <laughs> um, and I guess we'd be in a very different place now if, um, if he hadn't. The other thing about him is, I think Carlo can be very different in, in private at times as well. Um, even in the book, there are stories about how and no, no one ever sees Carlo get angry, do they? He's very, one of the most important parts of his management is he doesn't really like to show anger in public. That side of him will always be kept private. But I think because he's, he look, he appears so mild-mannered and, and laid back in public, people think he never gets angry. Well, he does. As Latan tells a story about when they were at PSG, I think, and um, half time in the dressing room, they're losing and he's not happy and he's so angry that he kicks a box so hard it, it hits Latan in the face. Now, you know, we all remember what happened with, with Beckham and Fergie, <laughs> something similar happened at United. Um, but Zlatan is also as, as combustible as a figure and still says to this day that Carlo Ancelotti is the best coach he's ever worked with and, and loves the guy. So that kind of tells you everything about him as well. Um, but I can remember that there's a, another story about, um, I think he caught, when he was at Real Madrid, um, he caught some players out um, late the night before training because two of them came in late that morning for training and he'd, he'd done some digging and discovered they'd been out drinking um, the night before. So obviously he gets them into the, the office because he's not happy with this, um, gives them the, the lecture about values and, and respect and, and a good ticking off. Um, but then right at the end of, of the lecture, he, he, he sort of lifts the tension by saying, next time, make sure you invite me along. And <laughs> That kind of reminds me of the sort of thing Howard Kendall would do with players, you know, and, and none of that was ever made public. It was all kept totally private, but he got his message across by, you know, the, the stern lecture of the players, you know, don't do this, blah, blah, blah. You've got to show respect to the club, have the right values, all the rest of it. But he lifted the tension afterwards and made them leave the room loving the guy because he put a smile back on their face. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a very... It's a very clever trick to be able to play with players, I think. There's, I remember there's another story at Real Madrid um, that the players were all out late one night in a restaurant, which they had permission for this time. Um, and one of them says, oh, we should we should ring Carlo. And the other one looks at his watch and says, oh, it's 11 o'clock at night. Isn't it a bit late to be ringing the manager up? And would he would he like that? I probably wouldn't like that much, would he? And no, no, call him anyway. So they call him up. And 10 minutes later, he's joined him in the restaurant for a drink and a laugh. And he spends an hour with them, departs, and they all think, oh, what a guy. But you think, 
at how many other clubs would the players in the dressing room decide they could call the manager up to come and join them for a drink at 11 o'clock at night? Or you indeed know? even want the manager to join them. Well, exactly. <laughs> it, just, it just shows what, what a kind of character he is. I think he's, it's very clever to be able to do that with players. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think his, his man management skills must must be phenomenal. I know um, through I'm not I'm not going to say which player it is, but I know I know through one one of the Everton players, um, the difference between, uh, or as he sees it, the difference between the club post Carlo and you know pre Carlo, when when this particular player wasn't wasn't too sure of what his role was in the club, wasn't too sure whether mm-hmm. uh, he should stay there. And, you know, he now feels like a million, well, he is a million dollars, but he now feels like a million dollars because he has a manager that, um, you know, supports him. And I mean, it's, in a sense, it's, it's a pretty obvious thing to do, isn't it? It's a pretty obvious thing to, in, in anything that you do in life, people are the most important things in, in, in any organization. And you only get the best out of people when, um, when they're happy, when, 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 when they when they want to work for you, I guess. Uh, and it's strange, I suppose, that not many managers recognise that. When you were talking about um, him getting angry, he actually says again, you know, from the from the same book that, um, he, of course, he gets angry, but he doesn't get angry often because if he gets angry often, then the effect of being angry is lost on people. And yeah. you know, it's true. If yeah. you're, if you don't have anything else in your left in, in 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 your armory in terms of how do you get through to players if you're constant constantly ang- angry? I mean, yeah, I suppose. Well, actually, even even somebody like Ferguson. I mean, Ferguson obviously had a very you know short fuse and he could sort of blow up, but he he was he was a guy that could also put his arm around players. Yeah. Um. He used his anger. I I suspect he used his anger to great effect. Um, and I know I, I've, I, don't, I suppose you've read his book as well, but uh, you know he was a great man manager as well, albeit somewhat different from from Carlo. Yeah, and, and you talk about managers getting angry. Um, thinking back to, to Chelsea, people often compare Carlo to Mourinho because they're very different types of, of character. Um, and I think I think it's probably Zlatan again, actually, who said that. Carlo's the perfect person to come after Mourinho because he restores the balance. Um, Mourinho is someone who's basically angry all the time. And he may, may have mellowed slightly these days, but certainly in those days when he was at, at Chelsea, he, his whole shtick was to be angry all the time. He was constantly challenging people, constantly calling them out in public, constantly playing little tricks to get one up on people and, and you know, provoke their anger to make them better to force them to do things um but that kind of management i think can wear you down after a while it, it, and that's probably why Mourinho in the second and third seasons at, at clubs is, is probably why it starts to go wrong for him because when you wear people down like that they, they end up switching off a bit because they're they become used to it they become they become immune to those kind of tricks and there's only so long you can keep people constantly angry with you all the time so you know you, you could argue that the two styles of management Carlos is probably the, the better one for the long term than, than Mourinho's is and, and you'd hope that because Everton have shown a lot of faith in, in Carlo and, and they're hoping that he's going to be there to for quite a long time to, to, to transform the club that he, he 
he does stick around and he does see this see this out. There's no reason to think he he won't really. I think I hope. Yeah, no, I agree. What what I'm really interested about is whether whether he can bring his uh, his winning mentality to 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 the club, because you know whilst we all say and and you provide evidence through, through through having met him and the tales that you can talk about in terms of him being a nice guy and everything else. Ultimately, the guy is is a winner, and he he mm. wants to win things. He wants to be, he wants to, you know, and he has been consistently throughout his career, the best um, in, in his job. And I just wonder how, well, not not even how quickly can he achieve that, at Everton. First of all, whether he can achieve that as Everton, because it's so, seems to me at least, um, it's so long since we've had that winning mentality in the club probably actually um no i think i think i could probably go back as far as joe royal in terms of when was the last time that we had somebody that was a you know an absolute out and out winner david moyes for all of his um his great skills and all all the great things that he did did at the club uh in my opinion isn't an out and out winner no maybe not no um i don't know if that's being unfair on him or unkind on him but well i mean the, the evidence is there in front of him. I mean, you know, if you look at his honours board, I don't, I don't think he's got anything on his honours mm. board, has he? Um, and that's not to say he's not a good manager or anything. He's doing a fantastic job at West Ham now. Uh, but in terms of Everton, it's you know, not not just the fact that Joe Royal won something, but you have, I think you have to go back to at least to Joe Royal, and then before that, Howard, obviously, uh, to find an absolute winner. I think with Carlo, he's got a way of exuding this confidence that, you know, um, translates itself in, into the dressing room. I think he brings that sort of confidence with him. If you're looking at, Carl, at Carlo Ancelotti, you're, you're looking at his CV and the things he's, he's won um, and you're going to listen to him, aren't you? So I think you, we're already seeing signs of that. He's, he's raised the, the profile of player that Everton have been able to attract, um, probably raise the profile of the club in, in certain places as well. And I think players from the way they talk about him at Everton genuinely understand that he is there to win and that there are no shortcuts or excuses anymore. I can remember Seamus Coleman saying a few months ago that there, there's an argument for saying really that um, because Everton have been through quite a few managers over Mashiri's period, in the same way that, that Chelsea have with Abramovich, it's very easy to think, oh, if things are going a bit wrong, it's the manager who's going to get it rather than us. And, and players can go missing or, or hide in in those situations sometimes. But I don't think we've seen that really under Carlo. I think the players know that the demands are there and, and that you don't cross him and that you've got to go with him, really. I can remember at Chelsea, um, he did make some big calls and he did sort of stamp his authority on the team at the same time without having to rant and rave too much. There was a time when um, Drogba, who was still the, the key man really for, for Chelsea in, in those days, was late for a, a team meeting. And, you know, well, I don't think he was terribly late. It was only a few minutes or, or something, but he didn't play the next game. And Carlo has that kind of ruthless streak in him. I think Everton's players know that. Um, and I think I think they will go with him. I think they will follow him. Yeah, because I mean, there was uh, just thinking back. There was the incidences with um, Moise Keane, wasn't there? In terms of uh, was that 
that might have been pre-Carlo when he was late. He was late for a couple of um, club meetings or team meetings. Yeah, um, it was pre-Carlo. Yeah, Although I think it was. The Keane situation is a strange one, isn't it? Because everyone thought Carlo would be the perfect manager to get something out of him to, to unlock whatever potential wasn't being seen there. And it still hasn't really worked. So I, I wonder, you know, if, if they'll cut their losses there and, and sell. Because I'm sure when Carlo came in, he, he thought he would get something out of Keane, but he hasn't really been able to, has he? And, and maybe that, maybe that's that's a relationship that won't, won't be rekindled. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not one all all all, all the way round, isn't it? Because um, it seemed when Keane arrived that uh, Marcel Brands had a very good relationship with you know with his family. Uh, you know, obviously referencing his mother and the fact that his mother was there at the at the signing ceremony. Um, but it just hasn't worked for some some bizarre reason. No, well, he's very young and he came to a new country for the first time and and struggled to adapt, didn't he? Um, but I don't think the way he was used on the pitch probably helped him much either. Uh, well, that's true. He showed so little that he, he didn't really um, force any of the coaches he, he worked with into putting him in the team for any length of time, sadly. Um, and his, his body language was, was pretty awful towards the end, wasn't it? I can remember when he was scoring in, in the cup game. Um, it didn't really celebrate and didn't look happy. And, and you just thought he looks like someone who doesn't really want to be there. And there's only so much you can do sometimes with players in that situation. So, yeah, I'd still like to think Carlo might be the one to get something out of him, but got my got my doubts now there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you said earlier about Carlo having a reputation for you know, uh, the odd little white lie here and there. Um, he did say, didn't he, a few weeks ago that he, you know, Moyes Keane was a a big part of Everton's plans for next season. Mm. Um, and I sort of thought, even when, even at the time when he said that, I was just like, hmm, is that just a case of? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm the seller here, and I'm, I'm bigging up the guy in, in the sense that I'm making him, uh, making it, making it appear that I don't want to sell him. And actually, it's yeah, pretty, it's pretty clear that he's probably going to go. I would have uh, been surprised if he'd said anything else. To be honest, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Probably kind of have to say that that sort of thing, whatever your real opinion is. And I'm, I'm not someone who's ever going to criticise a manager for telling a little, a little white lie in public every once in a while. They all do it, and sometimes it's necessary, I guess. Yeah, I mean, why, why would you disclose, disclose your hand if indeed he's yeah. got one? One thing that's interesting, Paul, and um, what was Carlo's relationship with Abramovich? He was pretty good, as, as far as I as far as I know. Um, his relationship with all the people he's worked for has been pretty good. Um, at, at Chelsea, there were always kind of five or six players who had a direct line in, into Roman. Yeah, um, who'd be able to text and call him basically whenever they wanted to, which which is good in some respects and, and not others <laughs> at a club like that. Um, <laughs> but the feedback he was always getting from them was that they loved Carlo and. Um, you know, thought thought he was brilliant, but Roman has a difficult relationship with all of his managers, and, and when when things aren't going the way he wants, it, it can be a quite ruthless end. And you know, I think when Carlo left, he wasn't treated in in the best way. There's the story about him being sacked in in the corridor, isn't there, against Everton? Yeah. Um, he Carlo tells that story slightly differently, but if, effectively, you knew he was gone that night in the dressing room. So whatever happened, you know, was it was pretty 
pretty sudden and, and pretty ruthless. Um, but the, I, I'm, I'm not sure the two of them are in much contact anymore, but they, they, are, they still have respect for each other. I don't think Carlo, Carlo's not someone who holds a grudge. And I think Roman looks back on his time there with, with a lot of fondness. It's just he's someone who demands, you know, the, the, the top all of the time. And if you ever, if the team ever slips slightly below what he wants, then the manager is the one who always pays the price. So that's what happened to Ancelotti, I think, at Chelsea. Yeah, I've heard tales, um, but I think possibly some of them from you in terms of uh, how Abramovich, you know, um, treats his managers and, you know, after a particularly poor performance or a bad result, he'll quite often get the manager in, into uh, either the train, the training ground or, or Stamford Bridge the next morning to give an explanation as to what went on. It used to be like that, yeah. He, now that he's not, in obviously the company, not now. Yeah, the games, he's, he's rarely around to do that kind of thing. But he would often make a, a sudden appearance at, at training um, and, and want to know, you know, everything. Tell me what's tell me what's going on. Tell me what's going wrong. How can we fix it? You, usually in in a, in a helpful way rather than a, you know, malevolent force suddenly turns up at training <laughs> around to, to spy on your every move. Um, I think he genuinely thought his, his presence would be helpful rather than you know, a kind of strong arm reminder of who's in charge. Um, it, it would be fair to say, but I, I can, I can remember Carlo didn't even know he was meeting him when he, when he was caught, when he, when he was first um, being contacted about the job, he was just told by his agent to go to this hotel because a European giant might have a job for him. And he didn't even know he was meeting Chelsea or Abramovich. And I think it, the first meeting he had with the club didn't even involve Roman. It was one of his lackeys who was kind of feeling him out. And then he said, okay, you'll have to meet Abramovich. And a week later, they arranged another meeting in a different hotel, but it was all kept totally hush hush and, and very secret. It just, it, it just amused me that he didn't even know he was meeting Roman himself the first time, you know, <laughs> but I think the thing, the thing about Carlo is it all comes from his, his upbringing, isn't it? The way he, the way he is, the way he's been successful in football and the kind of standards he, he demands from people all comes from the fact that he grew up poor on a farm where he had to work hard with his family um, every day of the week. So he has those, those kind of values. He, he learned early in his life to be respectful. He learned the value of money, which I think is going to be very important for Everton because he's not someone who's going to turn around and, and say to Mashiri, I need a £50 million striker, go and buy me one in the next window. He understands, you know, clubs don't always, can't always do that. He understands he has to work with what he's got. And he understands that when you spend money, you need to spend it wisely, which I think are all very important. But the other thing I think that, that comes from his, his, his upbringing on that farm was the importance of family. He, he says a lot that, the way he is in terms of being very quiet and nudging people along rather than shouting and pushing and comes from his, his mum and dad. Who, he said his dad was never, his, never, his dad never got aggressive and shouted with him, his, his mum neither. They just stressed quietly the importance of hard work. And I think Ancelotti's family is quite a, quite a solid, solid bond. And, and that upbringing has, has kind of shaped his whole character ever since. Um, there's a great story that one of my colleagues from another paper had to do a background on Ancelotti and was sent to his hometown to go and, you know, ask people he knew and see if he could track down the family for stories about the guy. So he goes there with a, with a snapper, um, checks into a hotel and asks the receptionist for directions to the Ancelotti family home. Um, 
which she, you know, obliges them with. And later that day, he, he finds out the receptionist was actually Carlo's godmother and that she's been <laughs> in touch with the town mayor who gets loads of Carlo's old friends together to meet the journo and the snapper in a bar. And they spend all day just chatting stories about Carlo, who is still absolutely loved in the town by everyone, by all accounts. Um, and this is even before he's he's gone to meet the, the family or even knocks on on the family door. Of course, when he does, they're expecting him because the mayor's let him know that this guy's coming. So um, he's shown in and all the family photos come out and, you know, the, the dad tells him lots of stories. Carlos' dad's not with us anymore, sadly, but he, he was only too glad then, um, you know, to tell to tell the guy everything he could about his, his son, who he's obviously very proud of. Um, so much so that later that evening, he invites the journo to a 10-course dinner in a marquee on the pitch at Carlo's old club, his first club in the local town. So <laughs> he's being served a different glass, different glass of wine with each course. And he's saying, oh, well, we, we drove here. I'm going to get arrested for drink driving if I, if I do this. And he's asking one of the, the local guests, uh, one of the other guests, you know, can I leave my car here overnight? I can't, I can't drive back to the hotel. I'll be, I'll be pickled, you know, and the guy goes, oh, don't worry about that. I can promise you won't get arrested. You know, well, how can you promise me that? Because I'm the local police chief. <laughs> and you just think that kind of close-knit community is exactly what makes Carlo who he is. He's yeah. come from this area, this town, this farm, this family, where everything was about the family and the family unit. And he treats Everton and all the clubs he's been at as a family. That's why he treats players as human beings. He wants to know them. He's, he's your friend in the bad times. You can go to him for advice if you need anything, not just in football terms, but outside of football too. And I think that's why people love him because he's, earned those, he's learned those simple values from growing up on that farm, which apparently that his family didn't even own, apparently. I, I guess that changed over the, the course of his career. But when he was growing up, they were working on this farm and it wasn't theirs. So he also... Talent farmers, yeah. You know, yeah, he, he was working for someone else right from, you know, right, right through his, his childhood. But I think those values are what have stayed with him. And I'm impressed that he's managed to go to all these clubs and do all these things and win all this stuff without losing those basic values that he had as a child growing up. And it's credit to his mum and dad because he's a, a great man to be able to do that. Wow, that's, that, that's, that's a fantastic story. Um, <laughs> how, how much do you know, do you know of his son? Very little, I must say, although yeah. I'm told that his influence is bigger than people might have suspected it would be when he came to Everton. Um, it's very easy to, to look at someone employing their son and think, oh, he's just done that to, to give the, the guy a job. But, but apparently he's very important to the way that the club runs and the way Carlo coaches. Yeah, I, that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd, I'd heard something similar. I mean, to the extent that he runs mo most of the training sessions, certainly um, sort of in in the early part of the week before a game. And then obviously, I think from what I've heard, Carlo gets involved um, in the tactical sessions as, as the next game approaches. They're quite close on the touchline as well, I think, aren't they? If you watch yeah. carefully, you can see that um, quite often when, when a, a manager has a right-hand man, 
it's just the guy sat on the bench or, you know, standing with him in the in the technical area that he'll turn to and go, oh, that was crap, wasn't it? And the guy will go, yes, boss, yes, boss. But it's a, it obviously it's a very different relationship here, not just a father and son one, but I can see, I've seen times when the guy gets off the bench and goes to Carlo to tell him something. So it's, it seems a bit more like um, Arteta and Pep would have been at, at City in that Carlo's listening to what his son thinks and that I'm, pretty sure there'll be things that Carlo's done in the game that hadn't come straight from him that might have come from his son I'd love to sit down and talk to him about it but I think there's another tactical mind there that's that's quite important that's interesting I mean I probably should have looked beforehand what, what what's uh, uh, David is, is his son's name isn't it what, what's his background was he a footballer himself I'm not sure he ever really had much success as a footballer. No, yeah. um, he's obviously done a lot of coaching and Carlo thinks a lot of him. I think he, he also did a lot of scouting um, for clubs, doing scouting reports as far as I can remember. Um, but but that's as much as I know about him. I mean, Car- Carlo is the one to, to tell that story. He'd tell it better than I could. Yeah, of course. But I guess, um, well, given all, all that we know about Carlo and given what you say about him, He's not just going to employ his son uh, just because yeah. he, he's his son. Um, why would he? Why would he do that if uh, his son wasn't wasn't up to it? Because if Carlo wants to be a success at Everton, he's going to do everything that he possibly can do uh, to make the chance, the probability of success as high as possible. So, if, as it appears, he actually you know th- there's a significant um, responsibility in that role then it has to be the right person, whether it's his son or not. Yeah, and I think he's clever enough to know, having been around the, the block so much, that players see through that kind of thing quite quite easily. You know, if you bring someone in who, who, who's not really up to the role, just because he's a family member or, or a close friend, I think players spot that pretty quick and they, they can work you out if you're if you're not up to it on, on the training ground. And Carlo's been around some some very big very famous, very successful players. And I think he'd, he'd realised that you wouldn't get away with that, even at a club like Everton, really. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, Carl, I mean, he's an intelligent guy, isn't he? he and he's not, I, I don't think for one moment he's going to do anything that uh, uh, affects his ability to do his job. Whatever he does is going to be... <clears throat> in the sense that he wants his job to be, uh, he wants it himself to be as efficient as possible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, no, it's interesting. I, sort of just, just while you're talking, I'm sort of thinking about Everton as a club and Carlo. I mean, one of the criticisms, uh, actually one of the criticisms that I've used about the club is that, you know, we, this idea of us being a family club, the idea that, um, you know, we're a nice place to, and a living if you're a footballer doesn't always sit right with uh, the idea that you're going to be a winner. Um, but perhaps, and then, you know, this is just a thought that I'm having whilst listening to you, Paul, perhaps actually it's a good fit for Carlo. And it's obviously a very good fit for us that uh, you can maintain perhaps, you know, the, the family style of operating and yet still become a winner. I think that's right. I think that's probably also partly what appealed to him. Um, I have to say, when when he was first appointed, while I was surprised and delighted that they'd got a name like Ancelotti in, I did have my misgivings that he wasn't quite the right profile of of 
manager for the club. I, I had wanted someone um, who did have a set style of playing and who was a bit younger and who was more likely to be around for the long term, who could build something, get every um, every team in the club at all levels playing the same way so that uh, when your right back goes out, there's a right back in the youth team who can come in and play exactly the same role in exactly the same system. Um, but I've since changed my mind. I, I do think the more I look at it and the more he, the better job he seems to be doing at, at Everton, I think he he probably is the perfect person for the job at the moment. Um, what happens down the line, we'll have to wait and see. But he's got them into a position where they genuinely have a chance of getting into the Champions League. And I know I was optimistic at the start of the season and said, this squad is good enough for the top six. But I don't think I genuinely believe they would really be pushing for the top four at this stage of the season. And I don't think most Everton fans would have done either. So what he's done is is pretty remarkable. I know it's a strange season. There are lots of things you can throw in there that, that might have helped. Um, but to do that so soon uh, it, it's a good sign that Everton are onto a winner with him. And, and I think the fact that you know, there's the people's club stuff, the brilliant community schemes, the way it is essentially run like a family and has a very deep connection with its its own fans. I think they're all things that Carlo understands and things that are that appeal to him. So I think in, in terms of the character and the philosophy, he's a very good fit for the club in that way, yes. You know, this this is this this is just an observation of my own. One thing I have noticed about him, and it's interesting that you say about um you know, the community aspect, the, the charity aspect that it's at the club. I actually think he's distanced the footballing side from that. I think if you did an analysis of, uh, you know, media appearances by the players, by by even the manager uh, or part of the, the coaching staff, I think, I think you'd probably find that although the charity is still obviously very important, everything in the community is very important to the club and the club still communicate a lot through through the charity. Um, I think you probably find that the footballers themselves don't do as much as they used to. They might still do the activities, but from a um, from a communications point of view, I suspect you'll find that they don't do as much now regarding the charity as they used to do. Maybe. That would certainly be quiet leadership. <laughs> no, um, I, I'm just thinking COVID whether or not... Also, COVID might also have, have had an effect there, I guess, in that you, you, can't, you just can't do some of the things that the club would have been would have been doing before but if, if your point is that Carlo sees that the football side of it is the the most important part and that's what he wants to focus on I think you'd probably be right because he understands that he's there to win and he's not there to you know to to, to be a charity um, but I think the whole thing comes together I think the whole thing appeals to him in, in the way that Everton are as a club so I wouldn't want to overstate the no, no, sorry. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm I'm, I'm saying I'm recognizing that he sees the value in Everton as a community club. As he probably sees the value of um, the People's Club. What I'm just suggesting is is that he's the, the the criticism in the past might have been that the the players were too involved in that aspect of the club, right? And I just wonder whether or not he's had not you know first and foremost. Uh, your footballers and actually the charity 
is great and everything else, but let the charity people run the charity and we'll do, we'll do the, we'll do the football. I don't know. I mean, I'm it's, it's speculation on, on, on my part. Um, but you know, from a management point of view, it would make perfect sense to do that. Could be. Yeah. I wouldn't like to say, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, as, as I say, it's, it's just speculation. So, um, it, what, what do you think of his relationship with Marcel Brands? Um, it would be easy to say that that's a, a, a difficult relationship because um, if you look at some of the players they've targeted, there does seem to be some tension between um, one side of things and, and the other. But from everything that I'm, I'm told, the two work pretty well. Carlo's certainly used to working with that kind of model and with various directors of football. And I think he has ultimately got what he wants um, whether it's always been exactly what Marcel Brands has wanted might be another story. But I know from speaking to people close to Mashiri that he absolutely loves Brands and, and thinks he's, you know, found this genius who, who can, who's the right man to, to lead the club. And that's why he was ultimately promoted, wasn't it, not that long ago. Um, so Mashiri definitely still believes in, in Marcel Brands. I know there was a... a school of thought which suggested brands wouldn't be long for Everton when Carlo came in because Carlo would want to win now he'd want older players that he's worked with who may not be who may not make great business sense to buy from Everton's point of view um but I think brands has found a way to make it work brands never people forget that he, he never ruled out buying or bringing in the kind of players that that Carlo has in terms of, you know, Hannes and, and Allen, for instance. The only thing he ever really said was that the days of Everton paying over the odds for people like that are gone because it's not a club he thinks he can build whilst paying big money for those kind of people. And when you look at what they did, they didn't really pay big money for Allen. They held out long enough to get him at a decent price. And they didn't really pay, they didn't pay a fee for Hannes, we're, we're led to believe. And obviously he's not free because... You know, you, you pay a lot else in, in terms of wages and agents fees and all, all the rest of it. But the two things seem to be working in harmony. Brands is basically there um, to improve the club's youth setup, to bring in younger players who eventually have a, a sell-on value, to reduce the age of the squad and make it a better business. And Ancelotti is there to win now with the resources that, that he wants. But I don't see a big tension really between the two of them. I think it's clear from who they've brought in and the players they've gone after, the two of them have talked quite carefully about things and where a player might not have come across one of them, say Carlo's radar first. Once the two of them have sat down and talked about it, it's clear they both agreed, okay, yeah, he might be useful and that's why they've gone for it. I don't think, as has been the case in the past at Everton, it's a case of one person saying, I want these eight signings and the other person going, no, we need these eight. And the two of them arguing until Mashiri eventually gives in to one or the other. I think there's more, there's more, it's a more harmonious relationship than Everton have had there for a while, in my opinion. Yeah, I think um, the Ben Godfrey signing was a a good example of that, wasn't it? Where um, Carlo didn't really, didn't really know the player. No. But when, when Brands, you know, pointed out, what his attributes were, he he was um, he was persuaded, and and obviously it's turned out to be to be a, su- a super buy. Mm. Um, no, it's interesting. Oh, Carlo's certainly very pleased with that one. I think Decore was similar, wasn't it? I don't think Decore was anyone 
was it was on was high on Carlo's list of, of targets, but he was on the clubs. He's ended up there and he's ended up being a great player. And I think Carlo is very pleased with that too. Yeah. The, the interesting one about Ducora is, is that apparently we want we wanted him for a couple of years before we got him. But yes. couldn't couldn't persuade him to come to, to come over. Um I don't know what that said about Decore's relationship with Marcus Silva. Mm. Well, I can remember doing lots of interviews with, with Watford players who, who did nothing but sing Marco Silva's praises. So yeah. <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to say that he was never a big fan. But um, I do think maybe Marco Silva was a little oversold to everyone, and some of those people who, who sat down and, and told me with a straight face that he'd managed Barcelona one day were either really bad judges of character or were spinning me a line. <laughs> so, yeah. Or they were forecasting Barcelona's demise. <laughs> well, yeah, true. And who would have thought that Koeman would end up there in, in this situation? Yeah, exactly. Interesting stuff. Paul, we've, we've been talking for an hour, um, which is normally about the, the length that people can stand listening to me at least. Probably can listen to you for quite a bit longer. But um, we've, we've been talking for an hour. So... What do you think, just to finish off, what do you think success looks like at the, at the end of the season for Everton? Oh, that's a tough one now, isn't it? I, I yeah. hope they would finish in, in the top six, but um, the last few weeks have um, got people dreaming a bit. So it, it's, it's similar. To, I, I talk to West Ham fans a lot and they most of them can't believe they're up there at the moment either in the top four or, or pushing around it. And if they don't finish in the top four, which let's face it, they probably won't. And David Moyes says this himself every week. Um, some of them are almost going to be disappointed that they didn't. But I think that's a trap that Everton don't should try not to fall into too, because it would be great if they do finish in the top four and they genuinely have a chance now. If, if they don't make it, it's largely going to be their own, their own fault and that would be a disappointment. But I still think success this season is a top six finish and getting back into Europe. That is ultimately what, Carlo was aiming for and I think the top four comes from that are Everton ready for the Champions League really at the moment I I have my doubts they could get in there and they could you know have a transfer window that 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 changes that but of all the clubs up there some are more ready for that level of football than others and a top six finish would still be a brilliant achievement I think for Ancelotti yeah, I, I tend to tend to agree with you. I mean, obviously, very different side from the last time we played in Europe. Um, but I, I, I'm, as much as I would love us to be in the Champions League for for a whole raft of reasons, um, some of them obviously financial, but also just to, just the idea that we could play some of these teams that we see on our tele only only ever see on our televisions. Mm. Um, but you have to think that. When you, when you see how we play, for example, against Manchester City and we really struggle, um, whether or not you know the group stages would just be sort of eight matches, uh, all of a very similar nature. But hey, it'd be a good problem to have. Most definitely. I, I hope they do it. But I want to say one thing before before I went. Yep, sure. One thing we didn't mention, um, a word that's, that, all, that often comes up with Ancelotti is class. People talk about his class a lot. And... I don't know if, if you or, or any of the, the listeners ever, ever read the Lunch with the FT <laughs> articles they do on a regular basis, but they did one with Ancelotti, which really sums him up. It's worth finding if, if you can look it up online because they do, they send basically an interviewer 
um, to have lunch with a famous figure. Yep. And they spend a couple of hours talking to them and write up a big feature on the whole event, not just, you know, question and answer, but what happened, what he was like, you know, impressions of the guy. There's a really brilliant one on Ancelotti where he is just Carlo in a nutshell. And it ends with, with the guy writing, I, I pulled it up. I try to pay, but Ancelotti has already arranged something with the proprietor. How quiet, how effective. That just sums the class of the man up. You contrast that with, for instance, Richard Desmond, totally different character, who, who used to own two of my newspapers. Also did a, a lunch with the FT where he's quite hilariously pilloried, really, for being the kind of character that he is. And the first thing he did, Desmond, was order a bottle of £580 wine and insist that the newspaper pay for it. Can you see the difference? Um, absolutely. And it doesn't, su- <laughs> doesn't surprise me. It uh, doesn't surprise me at all about <laughs> Desmond. The funny thing about Desmond is that he was once described by, um, by, by Keith Harris as his kindred spirit. Wow. <laughs> okay. Which um, says a lot probably about both men. I would like to know who Carlo Ancelotti's kindred spirit is, but I'm pretty sure it's not Richard Desmond. That's a, that's a good question to end on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will find this um, really fascinating. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. No problem. Enjoy yourself. All right, Paul. Oh, Thanks very one much. Other thing. Oh, one cool. other thing. Yep. Carlo's other book, which whose name I keep forgetting, is also worth reading. And if you can find it, find the section on a prank he plays on Matu Firmini called The Brigand Chief, because it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. I, I, could have, I, I did find it before this, and I could have read it out, but it's too long. So if, if any of you can track it down, it is well worth reading and finding. Right. I'll, 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 I'll put the links in, in, um, in the, on the podcast, so... Uh... People, people can have a look at the FT article and if they can find the book as well, then all, all well and good. Um, Paul, thanks, thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. No problem.